Bear with us. Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich. And with me tonight is Beth Ann Fennelly. Before I introduce Beth Ann, I want to thank you all for tuning in and <laughs> thank you for bearing with us for the little technical blip at the beginning. Um, I also want to let you know that you can now listen to Writer Mother Monster as a podcast on all major audio platforms and read the interview transcript on writermothermonster.com. Please also consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon. Right now, this podcast is a one-woman band, so your support helps make the series possible with um, things like transcription and hosting and other such uh, services. Please also chat with us during the interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into the conversation. And now I'm excited to introduce Beth Ann. Beth Ann Fennelly, Poet Laureate of Mississippi, teaches in the MFA program at the University of Mississippi, where she was named Outstanding Teacher of the Year. She's won grants and awards from the NEA, the United States Artists, a pushcart, and a Fulbright to Brazil. She's the author of six books, most recently Heating and Cooling, 52 Micro-Memoirs from W.W. Norton, and an Atlanta Journal-Constitution Best Book and winner of a Goodreads Favorite Award. She lives in Oxford with her husband and three children and describes writer motherhood as monstrous, magical, mind-bending. So now please join me in welcoming Ethan. Yay! Thank you Hi. so much, Sarah. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so happy to have you. Thanks. So um, tell us just first of all, how old are your kids? You have three children. Yes, we sure do. Our youngest is 10, our middle one is 15, and our oldest one is 19. Oh my gosh. Yep. And you and your husband, you, li- you all live in Mississippi. Are you from Mississippi originally? No, I actually um, grew up in a suburb of Chicago, but we've been here 20 years now. My husband is from Alabama, and um, he, you know, we met at graduate school at the University of Arkansas, and I really like the South, so it's a good fit for us. Yeah, that's great. Um, so tell me a little bit about your work. Um, and actually, I'm going to back up for a second and just say where I first discovered your your work was through an article that you wrote. Was it in the Washington Post about your mother um, during this sort of 
unprecedented, challenging time. And that led me to look you up and to read more about you and to read your work. And just I was so thrilled to discover you that way. Um, so maybe first I'll ask you about that and then we'll talk about your work more more broadly. Tell us about that article. In particular. Yeah, well, I'm so glad that that brought you to me, Laura. Thank you. Um, well, my mom, the last couple of years, has been suffering dementia, um, just, you know, a little bit growing forgetful. You know, we kind of joke about her being batty, um, but it seemed all kind of in control and manageable. So she had a house in Illinois where I'm from and lived for a couple months every year in, in Florida in the winter. Then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everything that she did started closing down and um she couldn't go to church and she couldn't go to bridge and she couldn't go to the movies with her friends and she couldn't go to coffee and she couldn't come to visit us. And that's what she really wanted to do. She would call and ask me all the time. And I, I said, mom, you know, you can't fly, you know, you can't come. The kids might kill you. Like you, you have to stay. And um, her world was closed down. And I started hearing on the phone that she was getting more forgetful. And then she would tell me these stories or I'd get phone calls from her friends. Um, You know, she gave money to an internet scammer and, um, you know, she locked herself out of the house. So all these things were happening. And I realized that the isolation of COVID was making her worse, was making the dementia worse because she wasn't having any interaction. So my husband and I made the kind of gut-wrenching decision to move her into assisted living, which she didn't want to do. Um, we went up and, and sold her house and brought her down here. Now she lives actually just down the street from my house. Today we had really good news, Lara, because the assisted living in Mississippi has now decided if you leave, when you come back, you don't have to quarantine for three days. So up until this point, my mom has not been able to leave to come visit our house. We could only visit her outside behind a glass shield and, um, you, you know, have these kind of terrible, weird conversations behind our masks. But on Sunday, because my mom has had her shots, she can come to dinner. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. I know. Oh. I'm so happy. I'm yeah. so happy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. The shots are starting to happen. And oh, it, she's in the first wave, it sounds like, of, of folks who are you know, getting them. And, and that's great. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Um, tell us about writing that piece. And it was it, it was the Washington Post, I think, correct? Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. the Washington Post. Um, you know, it's funny because I'm not a big social media person and I'm not really good at the things writers need to be good at nowadays. Like, I just want to go back into, you know, I just want to go back to like a barter society where like I want a hamburger, I'll write you a haiku. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I hate money. I hate technology. I, I hate, you know, this, like these Instagram things. I can't do any of it. All I do is Facebook. And I'm, I'm only on that because my editor said I, I had to do one kind of social media. So I got on it reluctantly and late, but I have found several really good things about it. And, um, one thing that was interesting that happened was I ended up writing a post about moving my mom to Mississippi and how hard it was. And I, you know, just put it out there for my Facebook friends like you do. And so many people wrote to me either on the post or sent me personal messages about how it reminded them of what they were going through or, you know, dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's and the you know, death of loved ones. And the messages kept coming in and I was thinking, you know, I've really touched something here. And um, I, I don't know if I would have known that if I hadn't put it on Facebook. So I thought, you know, I'm still thinking about this problem and it sounds like other people want to talk about this problem. So I should try to write something. So, um, 
I decided I would try to write a modern love piece, which is like the dream of all writers, right? To land in the New York Times for modern love. And so I did, um, but it wasn't really about the kind of love they really write about. You know, it wasn't about romantic love. Um, so anyway, then I sent it to the Washington Post and they took it and I heard from so many people. It was actually a really deeply moving experience. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. It was a deeply moving piece. Um, and just the articulation of um, your mother's uh, situation and her emotional and mental state and then how that impacted your family. Um, and then you wrote a little bit, um, you touched on in that piece what it's like then to be a mother, um, although the focus was more on your relationship as a daughter to to your mother, um, which is an angle that, that I'm interested in exploring a little bit with you here, um, because we talk so much about children, about writing about our kids, but writing about our parents, um, about our own mothers is, is sort of a different um, aspect of of. Um, writing motherhood. So what was it like to write? Have you written about your mother in other contexts or was this one of the first times? You know, I don't very often because um, she doesn't like it because, you know, when you're a writer, you get used to being kind of vulnerable and being honest. And I really value honesty. And um, I, I'm interested in kind of explicating my emotions to try to figure out what the truth is valuing the truth really almost above anything else. And that's, that's not how I was brought up. I was brought up to value beauty and it was very important. I was brought up Irish Catholic in a very conservative Irish Catholic neighborhood and went to Catholic schools and went to Catholic all girl boarding school, although I didn't board. And the emphasis was always on being ladylike, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And sometimes I wonder why didn't I come to writing earlier And I think it's because when I was in high school, writing was really something you did um, to be a lady. It was like a finishing school thing. And, um, you know, we we weren't exposed to contemporary writing or contemporary poetry at all. The only Emily Dickinson poem we we read was, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? You know, so um, my mom comes from if you don't have anything to say, nice to say, don't say anything. Children should be seen and not heard. You know, so she she doesn't want to be talked about. So I try not to talk about her, which is really hard because we spent a lot of time together and we're very close. Um, but, you know, our styles of parenting are very, very different because I, I'm not invested in my children, my daughter being ladylike or my children being seen and not heard. Um, you know, I'm interested in teaching them to be confident and teaching them to be assertive if something goes wrong, you know, and, um, that's very, very different. So, um, one of the hard things of parenting when you are trying to parent in a different way than you grew up is um, you feel like you're recreating a wheel in some ways, you know, that a lot of the advice my mom had given to me isn't stuff I really feel like I could um, draw from, even though I know it was well-intentioned. Sure. Sure. Um, What, was it difficult then to write this particular piece when you had been, uh, not that this was not a respectful piece, but when you had been so respectful of her um, space and her wishes not to be written about, um, what was the process of writing of writing this piece? Did you have to kind of push yourself to do it? Did you talk to her about it? How, what was the process? Um, I didn't have to push myself to write it because it actually, you know, I was really driven to write it. I did think about whether I was going to publish it. And if I was going to publish it, I wasn't going to, you know, broadside her with it. I was going to show it to her first. Yeah. So um, I did show it to her. You know, the funny thing is, of course, it's about her dementia. 
and the parts she didn't like were because she didn't remember them. She's like, well, I didn't get locked. I didn't get in a car accident. <laughs> I didn't get locked out of my house. Like she didn't remember it, you know? So um, it's weird because I, I'm in her, I'm in it with her, except our take on it is completely different because she doesn't remember it, which yeah. is a blessing really in a lot of ways that she doesn't recall a lot of the hard parts. For example, Selling her house and putting her things up in an estate auction was really difficult for me. And I don't consider myself someone obsessed with possessions or materialistic, but there were family pieces. There were ties to history. And, um, you know, but I can't take them. I don't have a house that can take little china figurines, you know, or antiques. But my mom didn't remember any of them anymore. And it was so important to her growing up, the collections, the Waterford and the, you know, hair in China, all those things. And then she just didn't even really ask about them. You know, we were gone when they had the sale and she, she just didn't even ask about it. And I thought this is the one good thing about dementia is, you know, the terrible things you forget your memory and your happy memories. But the good thing is you forget the things that would cause you so much pain. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine what it's like to watch that process. I mean, um, my parents are similarly, um, you know, they collect antiques and they collect things that have a history that's both personal and, um, you know, beyond their own personal um, interests. So mm-hmm. they know the histories behind all these things. And I imagine that if they could no longer feel that connection to those items, it would be very devastating for me, but a blessing that they don't realize what they've lost in many ways. So I, I see what you're saying. Um, tell me a little bit more about the finishing school version of writing and how you, how you broke free from that to discover an interest and a love for words, specifically poetry. Yeah. So writing the way I was taught in high school was a moral thing that you did. And so I wasn't particularly encouraged by my teachers. Um, and I didn't seem to myself or to anyone else have any particular talent for it. Um, when I got into college, I took my first creative writing workshop and, um, I read my first contemporary poetry and I still remember reading a poem by Denise Duhamel about a bulimic woman eating a wedding cake. And it was so shocking to me that there was vomit in a poem, you know, and I I just couldn't believe that someone had written something that was so like intimate and personal and revealing, you know, and um, it was in a big way, a door into the path that I was going to follow where I wasn't interested in any type of mask. I was interested in, in, figuring out how I feel and how other people feel and um, what we're doing here on planet earth. Yeah. I imagine that was startling. Um, Tell me more about that sort of visceral connection to words. And I think the, the vomit, like the bodily, um, the connection to words with like your body and with your personal experience and with figuring out yourself and where you fit within the world, like you so eloquently said, talk a little bit more about how you investigated that. So once you sort of realized that what words could do, what a poem could do, how did you, how did you study it? How did you practice? Yeah. Um, I studied it by just eating poetry all day long. And, um, I also began the practice that I still have now these many years later of memorizing poems and reciting them just to myself, not on a stage or anything weird. Um, 
and uh, training my ear through the art of hearing the words in coming up my windpipe and coming out of my mouth. Um, and I do feel that writing is physical and um, as physical as dancing, really, and rhythmic, as rhythmic as dancing. And I think that human beings are rhythmic creatures from the patterns of our eating and breathing and sleeping and making love. And when we're writing, we're putting our bodies back in touch with the always rhythmic natural world and finding pleasure there. Yeah, I love that. That's really beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. Um, did so. Um, let's see. How do I want to ask you this? How soon after this sort of discovery in of language and poetry um, did you then become a mother? Oh, well, there was quite some time. You know, I, I was in college for four years and then I, I taught abroad in the Czech Republic on the Polish Czech border. And then I came back um, after one year and that was in 1994. And I went to the University of Arkansas and that's where I met my honey on the first day. Um, we were there together for four years and we got married when we graduated in 1998. And um, I was in Wisconsin for a year and then at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. Um, at that point, you know, we were thinking about starting a family and, um, and then we had our first daughter and, um, my husband got offered a position here at University of Mississippi, the John and Renee Grisham writer in residence because he's a writer. Mm-hmm. And, um, we came down here. I had my little baby like this. She was five weeks old and we were just supposed to stay for nine months. And, you know, here we are 20 years later. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. So you, you had quite, um, a stretch there for, um, discovering writing, for becoming a professional writer, um, for studying, for practicing. Um, how did becoming a mother change your approach to writing? Um, and then we'll talk about the content of the writing and the style, but, but just your, your process of writing first. Yeah, sure. Well, before I was a mom, you know, when I wanted to write, I, um, you know, I had to have my desk clean and you know my the, my favorite pen and you know I had to have like the right mental space and it was like now looking back it's awesome so precious to me because when I became a mom and my time got so attenuated and condensed into these weird little pockets that I would like lunge into any opening that presented itself I didn't care if my desk was clean I didn't even notice you know I mean my brain was able to um not notice anymore when work needed to be done, when housework would need to be done. Um, so obviously, like all mothers, motherhood took a lot of my time. The, there's a couple things, though, on the positive side. One is it allowed motherhood allowed me to focus much more quickly because I only had these pockets of time. I didn't waste time. You know, I was able to get more quickly into the heart of something. Um also, you know, in kind of a bigger sense, Laura, I think motherhood made me a deeper human being. And um, just to clarify, I don't think you have to become a mom to be a deeper human being. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who, like, don't need that and don't choose or can't become moms. Um, but for me personally, I think it deepens my connection to history, for example, to genealogy, to the future and to the past. And made me feel more a part of the world around me that I think was ultimately beneficial for my writing. Yeah. And I want to talk about that in a second, but, um, you hinted at how, um, 
your perspective on motherhood is different than your own mother's perspective and maybe methods. Um, how did your perspective of her change pretty immediately upon having kids? Like, you know, we're talking now many years later, but when you first became a mother, um, what were some of the things you were grappling with as you uh, looked back at your own childhood and, and started crafting, if you will, the, the childhood that your daughter would have and then your, your, uh, next two kids? Well, um, because our experiences were so different, I don't think I could like compare and say, well, I'm doing this. My mom's doing this in a certain way because my mom was a stay at home mother, you know, who had more resources. And my husband and I were these like scrappy, trying to be writers, trying to teach, like keeping it together, like gig economy, like working this thing and this thing. And, um, you know, just patching it together like day by day with this, um, you know, kind of zany slash exhausting energy of what is the day going to hold. So, um, you know, I, I can't say that becoming a mom made me evaluate my mom's job of mothering in a way that like was like an apple to apple situation. It just felt different. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so now let's talk about the content of your writing and whether there was a shift once you became a mother. And then throughout the last, um, how old did you say your oldest child She's is? 19. 19. Yeah. So through that the last 19 years, what are some shifts that you've seen throughout that time? Well, um, I ended up writing a whole book about my daughter's first year. So I think the big shift is that you know, I would even do that. And I had no idea I was going to do that or that I was going to be interested in it. But, you know, I'm kind of a like research type person and a type A and a A student. So when I got pregnant, I thought, well, you know, I want to be a really good mom. I want to get an A. So I'm, I'll just study. Like I'll read. I'll, I approach it like a PhD exam. Like I read the books. So I knew when my daughter would come, I would have no questions. I would like have this nailed. And of course, I was completely unprepared emotionally and psychologically for all the shifts that I was going through. And I was filled with questions. Mm-hmm. And for me, writing is the best method of articulating my questions to myself and um, trying to understand my own emotions, because we think our emotions are perfectly clear and transparent and accessible. But that's actually rarely the case. I think it's hard work to know how you feel in a certain situation. And I use words to help me do that work. So I was writing poems about what I was going through when I realized I was written, writing a book. And that book, Tender Hooks, was published by Norton um, quite some time ago now. Like, I think that was 2004 or something crazy. And um, then I ended up writing a nonfiction book on motherhood, too, which is also insane. But um, I thought, okay, I'm done with these mommy poems, and I'm going to try to write something new. But I wasn't writing anything. I was just going through this dry spell, I thought. And I had a student who unexpectedly got pregnant and was moving to Alaska. And her mom had recently passed away, and she was feeling like she was floundering. And um, she didn't have a computer, so I started writing her longhand letters. And she was writing me back longhand letters. And um, I I just thought I would try to provide for her some type of community through words. But I actually think it was good for me. I think that I had more thinking that I needed to be done. And the slow pace of writing by hand was kind of helping me 
think about some of the bigger issues of motherhood I wanted to think through, not just like the itty bitty dailiness of like how she had her medication and what did she eat, you know, but the bigger picture stuff. Mm-hmm. So that collect, that ended up being like a long process of the, our letters back and forth. And then my editor said, you know, I thought you were going to have another book of poems back then. I'm like, oh, I, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm not writing. And I'm like, well, I'm writing like two hours a day for just these letters. So she's like, well, tell me about the letter. So I told her that became a book called Great with Child, Letters to a Young Mother. Mm-hmm. So then I read another book of poems. And then I'm like, I'm not going to write about motherhood anymore. And then Tommy and I collaborated on a novel that is all about a family who, you know, about a mom who loses a baby and then gets a baby kind of via adoption. Um, it was set in 1927 in the flood of the Mississippi River. And um, then I'm like, okay, I'm really, really done. And so, you know, it turns out I'm never going to be done with it. I'm just going to take it on from different angles. Like, fiction and now my last book was a book of micro memoirs little tiny true stories about my life and a lot of those are about motherhood and in that book I'm also trying to find or explore really some of the funnier parts of motherhood which I think is sometimes not written about all that much maybe because it's still this like it's a private space but it's also a sacred space and Mm -hmm. a romanticized and frequently sentimentalized space which is dangerous because to sentimentalize something is to simplify it and weaken it. And so kind of some of the complexity of motherhood, which is there's a lot in it that's funny. Um, so that's what I was trying to do in my last book. So it turns out, I guess, despite my best intentions, I'm always going to be circling around motherhood, but through different genres and different approaches with different aims. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I love all of the, as you said, the complexity of, of these pieces and these, these books. Um, and I have so many questions about all of them. I want to start with, um, the humor. Can you tell me what is funny about motherhood and why, <laughs> and, and, and how did you translate that humor to the written word? Uh, sure. I mean, there's so much funny about motherhood because we're only allowed to talk about certain parts of it in a way that's, um, socially acceptable. So, you know, for example, I um, in that very first book on motherhood, I wrote I had this piece, really tiny piece, first day at daycare. My daughter comes home smelling like another woman's perfume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember when she came home and like, you know, it was her first day, obviously. And, you know, I was smelling her and just this sense of like betrayal I had, like the jealousy that like another woman had held her that close. And that's like a crazy crazy emotion but it's also an honest emotion and so that's interesting to me because it's not so often represented as a part of motherhood that that there could be jealousy for example I love that and I remember that viscerally too actually the first couple days at daycare we brought our daughter home she's four now and and yeah she's it wasn't perfume but it was this very like um school roomy smell like like cleaning supplies or something and I was like she doesn't smell like herself or like us anymore and it would take like no and by the end of the weekend she would smell like herself again but then she goes back to school so yes and it's it is a very visceral like physical um uh feeling and jealousy is a good word for it but it's also like this um uh violation kind of Mm -hmm. that something's been like your child doesn't feel like themselves or like smell like themselves that's that's really interesting and very powerful yeah um 
so <laughs> I love that example of, of humor and motherhood. Talk a little bit more about the, um, the danger of, um, what did you say? Sentimentalizing motherhood. And I think I, everybody can probably think of examples of that, but tell me what you mean. Well, you know, I think so many ways our view of motherhood is still this kind of like post-romantic vision of, you know, the mom alone feeling nothing but bliss for her child and feeling completely content in the relationship, desiring nothing more. And, um, you know, I think portraying motherhood that way allows mothers, like new mothers in particular, first-time mothers, to feel like they're insane. You know what I mean? That they, they, they yeah. can't, like, they're like, this has not been portrayed, you know, and like how messy and sometimes painful and crazy making breastfeeding is, for example, was not one bit part of any movie I ever saw when the mother's like, oh, and the baby's like happily eating. And then when you're in it, you know, there's like so much about it that's like hard and gross <laughs> and yeah. like amazingly blissful and, you know, mind blowingly profound. But like all these, like all the complexity has just been sanded off. So it's just like the, the woman in the beautiful nightgown holding the, you know, sweetly suckling baby. And, um, that was, that's like 1% of it, <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to look at the other parts of it because they're interesting because they're not overwritten about. And um, I did it for my own sake, but I felt a lot of readers responding to me with such gratitude, you know, saying, like, thank you for writing about this. I, I hadn't seen anyone write about this or this is how I felt or now I'm not so alone or, you know, women talking about reading my books, sometimes like even in the hospital after giving birth and it's just just a cool thought that, you know, someone would want my voice with them in that very vulnerable moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's an important voice to have in a vulnerable moment, a voice that tells you that all of this is, um, you know, everyone's experience is different, but it's all normal and that there's no one natural way to do something. And I remember yeah. in our birth classes, you know, they show you the videos of the breastfeeding and it looks so easy. And they say it's natural. Breast is best. All this stuff. And then you get this baby home and you don't realize that they don't know what to do. And right. like you think they're born and they like automatically know like, but no, they don't, you don't know what to do. And um, I remember a couple weeks ago, my sister um, and I were talking and she does not have children yet. And I was sharing with her um, probably too much detail. And I was like, you know, in breastfeeding and it's, you get like these um, slices in your nipples and then, you, you know, that your child is is drinking blood along with the milk. And she was just horrified. And she's like, why didn't anybody ever tell me this before? Like, yeah, I didn't know either. Yeah. But, uh, so thank you for for writing that um, honesty there. Yeah. Was was that also part of the letters that you were writing to the new mother? Um. Yeah. I mean, right. It was only because I feel like we're making a community by – is sharing our honest experiences with, with each other. And so like the first time mom would bring some of the baby who isn't prepared for it to be hard. And her husband certainly has not been prepared for it to be challenging for her. You know, like there's, we have no ethos that has presented the complexity of motherhood mm -hmm. and uh, validated you know, and validated the, um, the true like emotional and physical difficulty of a lot of it. So I think it makes people feel alone and maybe more ready to give up. I mean, maybe if people knew like 
this thing that we're talking about that the baby doesn't know and it's going to hurt, but, you know, like still focusing on how like awesome and transformative it is, but just better prepared for the difficulties that people wouldn't maybe give up after like a couple of days or even a couple of weeks if, if they're struggling and alone, you know, also, of course, it'd be nice if we lived in a culture that provided, for example, like Britain does, um, you know, at home nurses who come and, and help a nursing mother with like lactation advice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's many, many cultures, of course, all over the world that just do a better job by mothers um, taking care of them and, and supporting them with medical knowledge and supplies. Yeah. Not to mention, I mean, the breastfeeding is, is one example, but um postpartum depression. And if women maybe right. were, were educated, if people talked about that more, then right. we would know the signs and maybe seek out help and not feel as though we're, as I think you said um, early on, that you're alone and something wrong with you because you're not happy or you're not bonding with your child or you're not able to feed or nourish your baby in the way you've expected to and all of those emotional and mental things that go along with new parenthood. Right. I mean, even that the American healthcare system is so eager to get women out of the hospital because it's so expensive, you know, and like yeah. uh, just even another extra day or two for people to like work out the kinks or like as you say, postpartum depression, like the onset of that and um, just being able to like have people monitoring the signs more. Yeah. 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 Um, why do you feel compelled? And, and you've already kind of talked about this a bit, but a little bit more about why do you feel compelled to write about motherhood? What keeps bringing you back to it, even when you say, OK, I'm going to go on and write about something totally new and different? I feel I that, too. So I'm, I'm wondering. Yeah. yeah, I think it's the essential mystery of it and also that it's always changing. So even if you mm-hmm. figure out one part of the mystery, your child is one day older the next day. And, you know, if you have more than one child, they're in all these different spaces and they're relating to each other and they're relating to you. And so it's it's um like a fascinating, complex mechanism that's always changing. And this like growth organism really of the family. And so um I I think if I got it nailed and figured out, I would stop writing about it. But unfortunately or fortunately, that will never happen. What preconceptions did you have about motherhood or about writing about motherhood before you became a mother? Um, hi, honey. Uh, I'm doing the Zoom right now. Sorry. I just to <laughs> it's okay. It's actually about being a mom. So, you know. So. Yeah. Kids are welcome. Yeah. Okay. Um, I actually bribed the 15 year old not to, um, you know, to help me like with the Zoom streaming and then to like go away. Um, (laughs) gosh, Laura, you just asked me a question that completely went out of my head. That's okay. I'm lucky that I hopefully still remember it. Um, oh yes. I asked what preconceptions you had about, um, let's start with writing about motherhood before Mm -hmm. you became a mother. I know I had, preconceptions about, you know, literature that was about motherhood or about childbirth or about women's bodies. And that completely changed after I became a mother. Mm -hmm. Did you have any preconceptions or any um, feelings or emotions around literature that touched on motherhood? Um, Just there wasn't a lot of it. And what there was, I wasn't really interested in. But now, you know, I have found so much more. And there was actually... It was there all along, not celebrated and to the point it should have been. But, of course, it was always there. And I found a lot of mother poets, like in terms of mothering me and my mothering that have been important to me. But kind of what's really exciting is how many young mothers, including yourself, are interested in it now and, um, you know, working through 
the creativity and the challenges and the, the terrible dance of balancing that, you know, a mom in today's society has to, to figure out. Um, lots of anthologies, um, you know, lots of ways that mother writers are finding each other, including, of course, your beautiful series. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. So I, I wonder the same, actually growing up. I, I don't think I, that the stories were all that visible to me either. And I don't know if that's because I was not looking for them or similarly just wasn't interested in them. Um, but when thinking about writing as a, a young, younger person, um, you know, I thought about largely like big male stories, right? Yeah. Like, like the great American novel. And those are the books that are lauded. Those are the ones where you grow up exactly. aspiring to be a writer, right? Um, exactly. and something's changed there. Yeah. You felt the same way. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, you know, when I was in graduate school, everybody was writing about like the Greek myths, you know? And so I was like, <laughs> here's my Perseus poem as if I care, you know, and like, so all the books that were like lauded, you know, as you say, like the great American, like that, you know, giant novel, the, you know, Hemingway, Roth, Franz and model, you know, this, the giant mm-hmm. fat novel and, you know, or the novel that's about like war, you know, um, and really all the drama that is in those books that people are seeking elsewhere by, you know, fighting some, you know, like Odysseus or whatever is in motherhood. Like there's so much drama in the act of being a mom and so much courage and so much, you know, like all, it's all there. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, when you ask me for the, the three words, about motherhood, you know, I, I, I could have given you like many, many hundreds of thousands, but you know, one of them I think was mind bending just because you, your boundaries are exploded and your capacity mm-hmm. for joy is exploded and your capacity for fear is exploded. Like just on the extremes, like you've never felt such extremes before, including, you know, um, I, I never was someone who yelled until I had my second child. And then like my first child would, you know, like do something wrong with the second child, you know, like in other words, motherhood is the only time I've yelled in my life. So like new emotions, new actions, um, not all of which are pretty, you know, new fears, um, you know, all of, all of the hugeness of this crazy thing that is so everyday and all around us, people are doing it. And yet we somehow aren't quite aware of um, really how miraculous it is. Yeah, and I I question why it was never considered dramatic or like worthy of one of those big fat novels, you know, um, and why women's uh, why motherhood or women's lives or domesticity was um, relegated to this sort of um, secondary or probably even lower than secondary tier of writing, you know, like just women's fiction and there's nothing wrong with women's fiction but not every book about a woman is like a beach read or a you know um i don't know uh, it's a, it, yeah 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 so that that has been very frustrating to me as well it's it's nice to hear you articulate that um have your kids read your your books at all um yes and no um you know Yes and no. I mean, my my oldest has read it, but doesn't really want to talk about it. Um, 
And the 10 year old, I think, is still too young. Um, but the 15 year old seems kind of open to it all, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're all in kind of different places. But I, you know, I definitely don't force anything on them. But it's also true that, you know, one of the great perks of this, like, <laughs> itinerant patch together lifestyle is you get to go all these fun places for riding workshops and retreats and stuff. So we've taken the kids on some pretty cool vacations that were like not exactly vacations, but we kind of brought them along to do the fun stuff. So they've been around a lot of riders. They've heard me talking a lot about riding. They've, you know, been in the back of an auditorium with their Legos while I've been just on stage blathering about this or that. So I know it's like through osmosis, it's definitely a big part of their awareness that my husband and I are doing this thing and engaged in these issues. But, um, you know, it, it can't beat Pokemon Go. Yep. <laughs> and so what's it like? I think you might be one of the only um, women I've spoken to so far who whose spouse is also a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like? Do you feel competitive with one another? Um, do you have to share your writing time and, and sort of parcel up the time that you're parenting versus writing? How does that work? Well, you know, the best part about it is we completely understand what the other one is up against and in. And um, so, you know, there, especially when everybody was little and it was really a matter of like, you're only going to get, there's only two free hours in the day. So, you know, like you're going to take the baby and he's going to ride and then he's going to give you the baby and you're going to ride. And then you, you get the nap in there, you know, and it's all so like minutely figured out, but there'd still be times when one of us would have a good riding session and just need to keep on going. The other would just get it. Or, you know, the occasional, like, uh, I know we said we were going to have break and have lunch, but that can't happen today or whatever the situation is. Um, also just to be in the weirdness of writing, which is sometimes lonely because you're just alone with, your thoughts in the blank page to have someone to share that with has been a real blessing and a joy. Um, I wouldn't say that we're competitive with each other, mostly because we've always usually written in different genres and often had different interests and subject matter. Um, Tommy, for example, is not interested in motherhood, you know, Um, of course there are some challenges and part of it just comes from the pressures that this lifestyle kind of and you know puts on you and then to have two people trying to figure it out um and doing all the balancing of finding the writing time and carving it up for yourself and trying to be generous and um trying to be selfish you know and trying to like figure it out every single day where it's not just like a nine to five thing where you know what you're going to do every single day and it's all going to run the same. Um, but I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for a second. I, I feel so lucky that I've been able to find a way to keep writing at the forefront of my life. Um, you know, sometimes not making money on it, but or never making money on it probably, but um, just being able to prioritize it and to have a husband who wants me to, um, mm-hmm. has, has been wonderful. Yeah. How do you prioritize it? Let's talk about that in the elusive word balance that you mentioned earlier that, um, I'm finding might not actually be a possible thing. Yeah. But I wonder. Yeah. Like, do you think it's possible to find balance? And absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think maybe like bigger picture, it helps a little bit like a day might like, Cause I want to, I want to do everything well is my problem. Like I want to 
be not just a mom, but like a really good mom and not just a writer, but a really good writer. And I want to be a really good friend and I want to be a really good teacher. I I want to do service work and be a good human being, you know, so you can't be good at everything. But some days I'm good at one thing and not another. You know, like some days I'm like not such a good mom, but I'm a good writer. You know, other days I'm really giving it all to my teaching and then I'm exhausted when I come home and I I don't have a lot for the other things, you know. So I just try to keep it in balance in the bigger sense instead of that like micro sense. Um, But I think it's the number one challenge of writing moms. I think it is the single most essential and essential and um, unending discussion that we have. Yeah, definitely. Um, How do you, or I guess, how do you feel about this? So I am right there with you where one day I am a much better writer than I am a mother or much better at my job, my day job than I am um, at writing. How do you, um, how do you sort of, keep perspective that maybe it's this day I'm not the best mother I could be, but that doesn't mean that I'm a bad mother. It just Mm -hmm. means that today I've prioritized my writing time over, for example, playing blocks for an hour. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you keep perspective on, um, on all of these different things and not allowing them to define you and the parts of you sort of overall, if that made sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, the word perspective has a lot of different meanings. But one, of course, we talk about in novels when a character has perspective and the character can say, you know, I I didn't know then that in 20 years I would be doing such and such or looking back from time and saying, you know, back, you know, when I was a child and this happened, I didn't understand that really the person was blank, 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 you know. And I think that I kind of play that trick in my own head to get perspective. Like if I just had, you know, a day in which I had to prioritize one thing over another, I just try to think like, how will I look at this in a year or in 10 years? And mm-hmm. if I can like zoom out and just have a bigger sense of like, okay, this day was like this, but overall I'm able to do this. You know, like this day I didn't get any writing time and I feel really bad about it. And it makes me feel like colorless and, you know, uh, uh, unhappy and uh, frustrated, but you know, I, I I did get time this day, and you know, I, I overall I'm I'm finding the pockets of time. So just trying to you know zoom out. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that old adage that you should write every day? Um, it's the dream for me. I I try to you know so. I think everybody has to find their own way. I think any prescription is bound to fail. I would say for me, in the dream, in the dream life, I do write every day. Um, and I've become a morning writer since becoming a mom. That's mm-hmm. another way things have changed. So it used to be, you know, when time was there to be taken, I, you know, I could write at night or, you know, do whatever I wanted. Um, and then, I began to find that, um, you know, after becoming a mom, when it was harder to be, um, you know, to parse out my own time, I had more demands that writing in the morning was the time 
most it was the time easiest to make sacrosanct or keep to myself a little bit. So I actually trained myself more to become a morning writer to the point where I never even try really to write in the evenings. In the evenings, I'm kind of cash. Like I feel like I'm like a yeah. steam mill that like work. It's all gone. Um, I, and my ideas don't even come in the evening. It's not like I'm like batting them away. It's like almost like I, I've trained my brain in the morning. My my deal with myself is. You know, wake up. Nowadays, my kids are in school, and so it's have breakfast with them, you know, get them ready with their backpacks and get them on the bus. And then I try to go to my desk, and I try, you know, my this contract I have is I have to be at my desk and I have to be in the right mental space, which means I cannot have checked email. I cannot have looked at the Internet banking. I, you know, all the things that bring people into my life that need things, because if someone needs me, I there's something in me that has to start worrying about that. And so I just have to go to my desk as close to my dream life as possible. And I do think that kind of dreamy headspace helps there at the desk. And, um, you know, so all the things like that I can't be like checking email or thinking about what the student needs or be hungover or any of the other ways you can really mess with your morning. Um, if I'm there and nothing happens, if I can't write, that's fine. I was there. That's all I ask of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, you know, and Flaubert talks about the daily fidelity to the desk. And I've come away with thinking that there's something really there for me. If I can get myself there and be in the right spot. Maybe something will come, and if not, that's fine. I'll try again the next day. I love that. Yeah. Um, how is it, well? Has the pandemic changed your your writing at all? Um, and are your kids? You mentioned they're in school. Um, is the nineteen year old back home with you, or is she at college? Like, how? First of all, has the pandemic changed your family life? We talked about your mother a little bit, but then mm-hmm. secondly, how has it impacted your writing? Um, yeah. So, like everybody, the pandemic has really put a strain on every aspect of life, pretty much. So, you know, I of the three kids, I feel actually worse for my daughter who's in college because, you know, she missed her second year of college and, you know, had to come home and do her classes virtually. She is back at college now. Um, but I think, you know, college was such an amazing time for me, and I'm just – I'm sorry for the kids yeah. that missed out on any of that. Um, the boys, it was hard. It didn't seem quite as hard. I never thought I'd say the words, thank God for Xbox, but you know, <laughs> my 15 year old has been able to like meet his friends in that virtual world. So like, Oh God. Okay. Thank you. Xbox. Um, in terms of my writing, um, it's been complicated in a lot of big and little ways. Just the fear and anxiety, of course, takes a toll. Um, worrying for people I love worrying in general, anxiety, um, also, I get a lot of ideas for writing um, by going places and being with people and traveling and seeing new things and thinking new things. And I, I just feel like everything is bleaching a little bit around me. Like, I, I don't go anywhere. I don't see anybody. I don't do anything. You know, it's not quite exactly the case, but um, I, I do feel the narrowness of the pandemic has taken a toll on my ideas. Yeah. Um, so I'm very eager, like we all are, to try to open back up to the world. Yeah. Is there something you're really looking forward to doing when, you know, everyone's vaccinated and you can travel again and, and not wear your mask? And what's what's something you're sort of dreaming of doing? 
Um, you know, this, for me, it's just traveling. Like I, I love to travel so much and I like languages and I like language study and I like art and I like food and I like all the things that happen when you travel. And, um, this, this summer, I'm doing my first month-long residency. So, you know, when I became a mom, there were certain things I was willing to give up and certain things that I, I wanted to cling to. Um, for example, I decided I was still going to travel in small doses for a short amount of time, and I would be able to go away from my kids for a couple nights or, you know, as I got older, even a week. And then a couple years ago, I had a really cool opportunity to do something in Prague for two weeks, and I did that, and that was the longest I'd been away from my kids. And now with the youngest one at 10 this summer, for the first time, I'm going away for a month. And oh, wow. I've been, yeah, it's so insane. I've been offered a residency at a chateau in Switzerland. Oh, <laughs> I can't even believe it. Like, are these words actually coming out of my mouth? That's a dream. Yeah. I know. A writing, an international writing residency, six writers from around the world. You write all day. You have your own bedroom. And then in the evening, you you gather on the plaza for local Swiss white wine, and the chef prepares your dinner. Is that crazy? Okay, that's amazing. You're going to have to tell me whether now or after the fact what this is, because I'm going to keep yeah, my eye out. Chateau de Lavigny, I, I okay. think that's how you pronounce it. But, yeah, so I want a fellowship there. So, um, you know, so um, – and my husband is awesome, and he says I should go. And, you know, I, um, I think – I think it's going to be really hard to be away from the kids and I think it's going to be hard for them. And I think it's going to actually really be really hard for me. Um, But I I also think maybe we're ready. So we're going to see. First of all, congratulations, because that sounds absolutely amazing. Thanks. Um, But second of all, at what, so what has changed or shifted Mm -hmm. in order to make that feel okay? Because I am still, I'm I'm looking forward to that day. Obviously, my daughter is much younger. She's four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like uh, I think the longest I've been away was maybe five days, like four mm-hmm. nights, five days. Yeah. And that feels like a long time still right now. Yeah. And of course, I look at those residencies, too. And I'm like, at some point, I'll do that like a month long one. But probably right now, like 10 days feels like even too much for me so at what point like what changed and and at what point did you feel like maybe that was okay like what changed with your kids and then maybe with yourself I'm getting older I mean I wouldn't have done it either when when my children were four especially if I only had one and um you know which is also not me criticizing any mama who's watching this and is like I would leave my kid for a month you know what I mean like yeah totally totally I myself did not have the bravery or whatever it would take to go away for a month when mine were, you know, much smaller. But, um, you know, now that they're older and the two boys, the 10, 15 year old get along so well and entertain themselves and they, they like this local summer camp that they can go to. And, you know, um, my daughter wants to come home and hang with the boys for a bit. And it just seemed like, um, if I was ever going to do it now would be the time. So, No, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think um, one of my previous guests, I think it was Rachel Zucker and I were talking about residencies and about, um, you know, these these longer ones and how they are they can be sort of restrictive um, to mothers for those reasons when when you have young kids. But I also do want to echo you that, yes, um, nothing wrong with with going on a longer residency. I just feel the same way you do where I just don't feel ready for it. Yeah. Um, although my daughter would, she's resilient. She'd be fine. And her father would be fine. 
but it's me. It's like, I, I don't want to leave you for. Sure, then don't, months. you know, no, I won't. and when you, yeah. later, if you, if you feel differently, you can do it then, you know, exactly. there, you're not missing anything. No, exactly. <laughs> um, tell me just a little bit. We just have a few minutes left. Um, but I just, I wanted to hear a little bit more, um, about, what you hope your kids might um, feel about your writing. You say you take them, and, and I love the visual of um, your son doing Legos in the back of the room while you're on stage um, talking about writing. Um, what do you want them to take from those experiences, from being included in your writing life in that way? Um, you know, honestly, I think all I want is for them to be able to value things that are not valued in dollar terms. I want them to be part of the gift economy or an economy of, you know, and I'm not saying they have to be writers. I'm just saying I, I never want them to value their lives based on how much money they're making. Mm-hmm. And already there's pressure on them to do that. Um, they've grown up with a model that was, you know, quite different. And so whatever they choose, I mean, like maybe they'll become stockbrokers, God forbid, um, <laughs> but, you know, whatever they choose, I'll know they had the opportunity to know that there was a, like a different way of valuing things. I love that. Tell me just a little bit more if you're comfortable doing so. How do you live um, in that way? Like, and I love, you know, I, I feel similarly that, you know, you don't make much money off of, of writing truly. Um, how do you survive? How do you and your husband um, sort of maintain this amazing philosophy on life and the value of your work and what you're doing? And then logistically, though, how do you how do you survive? Yeah, well, logistically, we're professors. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, like that's a big part of it. The other part is um, remembering that time is more valuable than money. So when I have opportunities to do something to make money during the summers, like teaching summer school, um, you know, I just try to make sure it's it would be necessary in all the different kinds of senses. Mm-hmm. So, like, would more money mean, you know, we can just have, like, nicer scotch or, you know, or is there a reason why I want to have a particular teaching opportunity? Because I actually really enjoy teaching. I can't help it. Like, I I know it takes my writing energy, but it also feeds me and I, I like being with people. So sometimes I just want to accept teaching opportunities, but um, I just want to make sure that I maintain a, a value, like the primary value in my life is the way I spend my time and spending my time is, is like voting. Like In other words, spending my time with my family or my writing or my friends or art, any, any way of looking at art or experiences like that. Um, that's what's valuable to me, not like a designer handbag. Um, yeah. But if you live in a culture that's always showing you designer handbags and always asking you, you know, the only question you're going to be asked is day, like confirm purchase, you know what I mean? Like go to checkout, you know? And so um, you have to kind of struggle to keep the, the, like your eye on the prize when the prize is um, time, beauty, and truth. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like there's a question there I really want to ask you and I'm trying to articulate it. Um, so I feel it, it, for I'll just be personal about it at this point with with where I am with my career. Um, you know, there there are a lot of 
opportunities that are starting to sort of open up where like somebody says, will you judge this or will you do mm-hmm. this? And I feel like I need to say yes to everything because of where it might lead me, even though there's no financial gain involved, obviously. But as you mm-hmm. said, time is money. Um, and I value my time with my family and the writing time and those types of projects detract from the time you have to actually sit and write or to be with your family. How do you approach um, opportunities, both sort of large and small? How do you look at an opportunity and say, is this something that is, you know, that I at this point in my career should take on? Or is it something that is a distraction from the real priorities of my life? Yeah. So if, if something is an offer for money, that's actually easier for me to say no than if someone is asking me for a favor. Yeah. I especially struggle, you know, I get a lot of requests for blurbs and in different genres. And, um, you know, it's really, really, really hard for me to say no, especially, frankly, um, I do feel mentoring young women writers is a priority of mine. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, if if a young women writer, especially, you know, a young writer of color or, you know, someone who's like queer, non-binary, if they're reaching out to me, like I I, I honestly have a hard time saying no, because I just feel like um any assistance would be so useful, so helpful. So I probably say yes more than um, I really should. Um, in terms of the stuff that would, you know, not help someone else, but help me, like help my career. I try to keep in mind always a statement by Keats. He said, guard well your spare moments for they are like uncut diamonds spend them and their worth will never be known so you know just those moments that we give away what could we have done with them what could we have written what amazing time could we have spent um with our family like if we give if we give it all away and use it up we'll never know what those moments could have been so i i, I work hard to remind myself of that because i I am someone who likes to say yes to people and yes to life. That makes me happy to feel like I'm a generous person. But um, I also know that um, remembering to guard my my spare moments is um, repays me in the long run and keeps me strong for giving again another day. Thank you. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap up and really valuable advice. I think I'll print out that quote and put it on my, you know, right above my desk so I can look at it every time I'm making a decision about how to spend my time. So thank you so much, Bethann, for joining us. Um, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you and um, to get to know you in this way. So thank you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. I'm so happy yeah. you asked me. The, the time flew by. I really loved your questions. Yeah. And I'm wishing you and your series the best of luck. Very Thank you so part. much. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us as well. Um, if you didn't see, um, Beth Ann, there's a comment here from Susan, um, Cushman, who I gather knows you and your mother and had some nice things to say. Um, so thank you and, um, to the rest of you for tuning in. And again, you, you know, you all know this by now, but you can watch the video again, listen to the podcast or read the transcript on writermothermonster.com. You can also buy Beth Ann's books by visiting the bookshop link on writermothermonster.com. And there you will find books by all of our other authors for sale as well. Um, I am not the one selling the books. It's through bookshop, which is a great alternative to Amazon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, as always, please consider becoming a patron or patroness on Patreon. 
Thank you all again so much and have a great night.